Hey, welcome to the Plant Yourself Podcast. I'm your host, Howard Jacobson. Before we get to today's show, a quick reminder that this podcast is free for everyone and supported by those who can afford it. So uh, if you have found this podcast a useful companion during 2020, and you'd like to see it continue through 2021, I would invite you to go to plantyourself.com slash gift. If you are in a position where you have the means to support something that means something to you and hopefully uh, you think is doing good in the world. You can use PayPal or Patreon. You can make a one-time contribution or become an ongoing sustaining patron of the show. And if funds are too tight for you to show your appreciation in a monetary sense, you can still leave a review of the Plant Yourself podcast on whatever platform you listen to podcasts. That also helps us a great deal. All right, on to today's episode. This is the Plant Yourself Podcast. I'm Howard Jacobson of PlantYourself.com, the Big Change Program, and WellStartHealth.com. This podcast is part of my mission to help you live a glorious and gutsy life. Today's guest is Dr. Will Bolsowitz, who has given us permission to call him Dr. B. He trained to become a gastroenterologist, and he studied at some of the top GI programs in the world, like Georgetown, Northwestern University, the University of North Carolina, Go Heels. He's board certified in both gastroenterology and internal medicine. Why am I trotting out his credentials to introduce this podcast? Because even with all that education, Will found himself unable to answer even his patients' most basic questions about what they could do about their own GI conditions, diseases, and distresses. What should they eat? He had no idea. What should they avoid? Don't worry about it. What causes gluten sensitivity, intolerance, and celiac disease? Should they eat local? Should they eat organic? None of that was covered in his medical education or his subsequent internship and residency. Instead, he and his fellow doctors were trained exquisitely in the cellular and molecular minutiae of pathology, of why things go wrong. It's like you study to become a highway safety engineer, and you're supposed to design safe roads and figure out speed limits. And instead, you spend a decade learning what happens in microscopic detail when a car bumper strikes different kinds of concrete barriers and the best way to repair those barriers following an accident and never getting any training in how to design safe rows. It's crazy. So Dr. B grew tired of his role as diagnoser and pill pusher, and he dove into the scientific research on the link between nutrition, lifestyle, and this exciting newly emerging field of microbiome studies. And what he learned, he implemented for himself, and he took lots of pictures. And so through his teaching and his social media outreach, he taught. He's got a popular Instagram channel, 10,000 plus followers, baby. And he's educating the world about the power of diet and lifestyle to give us a healthy gut and a healthy life. But first, a couple of quick announcements. First one is I've seen an uptick in downloads since I got an uptick in reviews. It seems to work in a pretty linear fashion. The more reviews I get, the more people discover the podcast. So if you're a fan, if you're a listener, if you think more people should have access to this information in this format, one of the easiest things you can do is write that iTunes review. If you're not sure how, go to plantyourself.com slash review for a cute short little video that will show you exactly how to do it. Thanks. Second thing is, if you would like to get healthy, 
reverse chronic disease, lose weight, get fit, finally implement fully and sustainably and easily and joyfully the plant-based life that you've been flirting with, check out wellstarthealth.com. We are ramping up for a new cohort in July. You can read about the program at wellstarthealth.com. You can shoot me any questions at howard at wellstarthealth.com, and you can spread the word. What we do really well is help people put their intentions into practice and keep practicing until it becomes second nature. All right, so let's get to our interview. A lot of what Dr. B shares is stuff we do want to get into our lives. He's a very practical guy. He talks about exactly how to ferment cabbage into sauerkraut, lots of other things we can be doing. So there's a lot of theory, there's a lot of story, but there's also a lot of practical nuggets here. And so I hope you will put them into your life and spread the word. All right, so without further ado, Dr. Will Bolsowitz, welcome to the Plant Yourself podcast. Thanks for having me on, Howard. It's a real it's a real privilege to be on your show. You this you've done amazing things with this podcast. And so I was really excited to have the opportunity to come on and have this conversation with you. Well, I'm I'm excited too. And so you you have given me permission to call you Dr. B. So I don't have to uh, pronounce your name the whole every, every single time. And and I guess every, everyone else in the podcast when they uh refer to you or reach out to you, you're Dr. B from now on. Totally. I actually love that. I actually love being Dr. B. It's sort of like the persona, you know, that's my nickname. So I've grown to really enjoy being Dr. B. Yeah, well, I, I wanted to be Dr. J, but that was taken. So <laughs> cle- clever clever of you to uh, to have uh, staked, staked out a niche for yourself. There you go. Yep. So so we're going to be talking about um, your specialty, which is which is gut health. But before we get there, let's find out who, who you are and, and how you got to uh, be where you are now. Well, I, I am actually a full time gastroenterologist. And uh, so I spend my days seeing patients and also performing procedures, colonoscopy, upper endoscopy are a few examples of what I do. And my practice is in Charleston, South Carolina. So that is my day job. That's my full-time job. Um, and I did 16 years of, of training to, you know, basically become the person that I am uh, with regard to that. But what's interesting is that, you know, I went through this training process 16 years and, you know, most of that time was 60 to 80 hours per week of just really hard work. And I emerged and I felt like there were things that were missing. I felt like there were things that I had not been taught. And so I'm someone who, you know, I take my job very seriously. It's it's personal. It's sort of like part of the fabric of my soul. This is who I am. And so when patients ask me questions, Dr. B, you know, what should I eat for my irritable bowel syndrome? Dr. B, what what are good foods to consume because I have Crohn's disease or ulcerative colitis? These are all conditions that I take care of. Those are very basic questions. And, you know, what's interesting is I trained at these great institutions, Georgetown, Northwestern, the University of North Carolina. I mean, where I did my GI training, I, I think I could make a very compelling argument that this is the top GI division in the entire country. And yet, that really wasn't a part of the conversations that we were having. And so after finishing my training and going into practice, people were asking me these questions and I felt like I needed to have good answers. And so I started to spend my time uh, outside of work 
reading and studying and wanting to learn more. And, you know, there's many sort of things that just kind of came together at that same time. I met my wife who um, is vegetarian and, um, and, you know, shortly after that we got married and then we had children and you want to raise your children to be healthy. Um, and so all these things sort of happened around the same time. And as I was studying and learning more about diet, I started to see it all come together in a way where it was clear to me that the way that we are eating in the United States is a tremendous mistake. And um, I would describe it as the likely cause of the vast majority of medical problems that exist in our country. And there are solutions that are actually incredibly simple and the data are out there. The science is there. We don't need to wait for the science to be there. We have a mountain of evidence that's already there. And um, as I started to study, it became much more clear to me that people were not getting the information that they needed. And so that's where I decided to start to share my thoughts on diet and nutrition and gut health initially with an Instagram account. And I started to also get into public speaking and things like that. And so that's where I am today is, is that I'm out there trying to spread this message about what is gut health and how we can use diet to really achieve that. Cool. So when you say you were, you were, you know, in medical school training at some of the best places in, in the country, um, and, and you really didn't have a conversation about like, what should I eat? Was it, was, was the converse, was there a conversation about causation like in the first place, or was it simply like gut problems happen and here's what we know about how to treat them? So that is a great question. And what I would say is that, you know, the, the, breadth of what you need to learn to become a medical doctor is overwhelming. Um, you know, just the course on pathology, which is the study of disease, the textbook is like 1500 pages of the densest stuff that you will ever read. And the expectation for that course is that you are going to know that book backwards and forwards and that you're instructor has the right to ask you a question about literally anything that's in there, like just find a sentence and they can ask you a question about that. And so it's really easy to get drawn down into the weeds. And the medical training process focuses on those things It focuses on, you know, on sort of what is going on on the cellular level, um, in terms of the, you know, development of disease and what and what can we do from a pharmacologic perspective to try to treat disease? And so you spend so much energy, uh, a lot of hard work trying to learn and understand those things that you lose sight of the bigger picture, which is if you take a step back and you look from 30,000 feet, it looks it becomes very clear when you look at the lay of the land that it's diet, it's diet that's driving this. But the problem is that when you're down in the weeds, you're not really seeing it that way. And I think that that's one of the major issues is that, is that our training system is not actually designed for at least us, um, allopathic physicians, Western trained doctors, our training system is not designed to prevent disease. And that's one of the major flaws of the American healthcare system is that we're reacting. We wait till you have diabetes. We're wait till you have heart disease. And then we start to do things to intervene. 
Mm. When really what we should be doing is talking to people about diet at all visits, um, including like most importantly, you know, OBGYN visits and, you know, pre-pregnancy, pregnancy, and then all the way through pediatrics into adulthood. Like we should be having conversations on all of those levels to make sure that people understand at least, at least make informed choices about the food that they eat. Mm. So I've been thinking a lot about education. Um, I've, uh, my wife and I have homeschooled our two kids. So we got, you know, we had to sort of think about it a lot. And when I look back on everything I learned, um, you know, even from like basically junior high, high school, college on, it was nice. Some of it was fun. Some of it you could say sort of, um, you know, served my my personality or my soul, but very little of it was needed. Right. And and I'm wondering for as you look back on your medical education, so I think it's you know there's there's definitely a function for weeding people out, right? Who aren't serious, who aren't going to like, you know, just a, a something they have to overcome, right? A, a hurdle. And I, I certainly want my physician to be knowledgeable, but do you think that there's a different way that, that you wouldn't necessarily need to know in this day and age of, of computers and AI, the, the 1500 pages of the pathology textbook backwards and forwards, or do you think you need to know all that plus something else? Well, that is a really interesting question that I've thought about um, quite a bit myself. And my children are younger, but my wife and I are planning to homeschool our kids as well. And, um, and you know, what you're talking about is streamlining the educational process. And I think that this is completely outside of what I think you and I planned to, to, to discuss today. But I love this topic because as a country, I really think we need to be thinking about these things because there's a lot of waste. There's a waste of effort. There's a waste of cost um, in terms of teaching people things that are not necessarily applicable to what they're going to do professionally. And we can't have people, you know, for example, for for most people in this country, we can't afford to have people that go and spend, you know, like these days, a kid could easily spend more than $200,000 just getting a college education. And if you spend that and then you come out and you are not using that $200,000 to good use and you're doing whatever, waiting tables or something like that, that was a complete waste of your time. And yet, you know, we were taught that you need a college education in order to be successful in life. But if that college education leads to you waiting tables, then what was the point? And so I think that, you know, the European system actually makes much more sense to me, which is to try to identify sort of a direction for people earlier on in the process and then to get them to that place much sooner. And so, you know, uh, like I can, I can um, strut around and, you know, basically flaunt the fact that I have 16 years of medical training, 80 hours a week. So I can say I did more than 30 years of professional work training to become a doctor. But the reality is that um, a lot of that probably could have been left out in terms of what I do on a day-to-day basis. And so, you know, like, would it be specifically pathology that I would cut back on? No, not necessarily, but I was a chemistry major in college and I don't remember anything about chemistry because that was, you know, 20 years ago. And so, um, there's other parts of the process that clearly could be streamlined to try to get people to where they need to be 
and just get them the information that they need. Mm. Well, so let's, uh, let's, um, I'm trying to figure out how I want to, uh, I don't want to leave that topic because I find it so interesting, but I want to make sure that we're giving people, you know, the, the plant yourself spin as well. But I just, I don't want to leave it quite yet. Like this idea, like that the medical education is basically tradition based or there's a lot of, you know, that while we think of it as like pure science, but there's still a lot of dogma involved at a meta level on like what we should be doing, what we should be thinking about. Like what what happened to you when you started um, becoming a little bit heretical about your your gaze, where it became more thirty five thousand feet? Was was did you just do it on the on the hush hush, or like what happened to you? Well, uh, first of all, the the word heretical is such a great way to sort of uh, frame that, and so. Um, when I started to think about these things, I first started to like, I didn't immediately go and start my Instagram account, the gut health MD. I didn't just like immediately one day wake up and do that. That was after several years of thinking about these things. And, you know, I think that the first thing that I did is I started to incorporate it into my interactions and in my practice. And so there were conversations, you know, I would learn new things and I would have that as a part of my conversation with my patients behind closed doors. And that patient then goes back to their primary care doctor and says, you know, I saw Dr. B and not only did he help me to fix my disease, but he also provided me with some dietary guidance. And actually I'm finding it to be really helpful and I feel a lot better. And so it sort of started in that place, but then it it grew. And at some point I felt like, you know, just sharing the story from behind closed doors is not adequate. I need to I need to spread the word. And so before, before we get to spreading the word, when you were te- talking to your patients, were you telling them that you were learning this stuff? Because I know a lot of doctors feel awkward about not knowing everything. Um, I mean, I you know, I guess I shared with them the things that I had been learning along the way. I, you know, I don't know if I explicitly sort of laid out to them like, Hey, here's what I know and here's what I don't know. And, you know, there's a lot that I don't know. And I mean, honestly, sitting here right now with all, all that I've learned with all of the reading that I've done, um, I become actually increasingly convinced that we know very little about what's going on inside the body. Like, I really think that we know about 1% of what's actually going on. (laughs) And I think that hindsight, you know, 50 years from now, we're going to look back at what we were doing in 2018 and we're going to probably chuckle and say, you know, we were using blunt clubs when we should have had a scalpel. And so so I I think that there's clearly limitations to what we know. I think there's clearly limitations to science. And sometimes sometimes you have to be willing to take a leap of faith and just say, this is what I believe is going on. This is what I believe to be true. But, you know, the nice thing is um, to to in a way put a plant yourself spin onto this is the nice thing is, you know, when you're talking about the value of consuming plants, there is a mountain of evidence that exists that supports that. I mean, it, and it's on all levels. If you want to evaluate something from a scientific perspective, one paper is not enough to say that something is the truth. 
But when you see things that are recurring themes that are showing up on a basic science level, on a cellular level, on a population level, when you look at big groups of people, um, you know, for example, I think that one of the great pieces of scientific evidence, modern times is actually the blue zones. Hmm. And that was never meant to be like, I don't think that Dan Buettner meant for the blue zones to be a science project. You know, he was just trying, but in a way it was, he was just trying to answer a question. Are there populations of people who live to be a hundred years old and what do they live like? Right. Well, that, that was basically science before we had tools for intervention. The scientist was was called a naturalist, right? They would right. go out and just look at things that other people hadn't looked at or just look at them longer and just sit more patiently. And, yeah. But, you know, to get back to your original question of, you know, um, how do you become this person who has a different take about what healthcare should be in our country? Well, you know, fr from my perspective, I never really thought of it as I'm branching off or I'm doing my own thing or anything like that. I just kind of looked at it like this is what I was trained to do. You know, I, I, I was trained – I have a master's of clinical research. I did a fellowship at the University of North Carolina School of Public Health. I was trained to read and understand research. I was trained to be a clinical doctor. I did all this time at Northwestern and UNC. And so, you know, I was I was prepared to form my own judgments. I don't need someone else to explain to me what a what a research paper shows. I can read that paper myself and understand it. Because that's what I did. I, I, I was on a track to become uh, a cancer epidemiologist. And, and the, the, you know, sort of what happened for me is I missed taking care of patients. And so I had to change my course in terms of what I was doing professionally. But to me, this isn't about being different. This is just about doing what's right. And when I see things that exist in the body of literature out there that people aren't necessarily talking about, then I think that it's important to call attention to those things. Mm, beautiful. So, with with that as a uh, as a, as a CV item, that you have this you know, the, the clinical background and also a strong background in in reading and interpreting research. Um, tell us what's up. Like, uh, what, what's what's your take on the evidence for a plant based diet? Well, so my focus is gut health. Um, I am very interested in nutrition, but I always tend to take a gut health spin when I'm looking at things. And so, um, what's interesting from a gut perspective is that if you rewind just 12 years, go back to 2006, we knew almost nothing about what was going on inside of our gut. We knew nothing about the trillions of popu of bacterial populations that live inside of us. At that time, 2006, we thought that there were only about 300 species of bacteria. And now we know that there's at least 10,000 different species of bacteria that can live inside the human body. There are some estimates that it could be 35,000. And so we discovered this massive ecosystem and it's a central focus for our entire body and the way that it works. It affects our metabolism. It's in direct communication with our immune system. 70% of our immune system is inside of our gut. 95% of serotonin 
is produced in the gut. That is the happy hormone that controls our mood. Um, you know, they directly affect whether or not, uh, they directly affect how you, how you process your food. For example, if you take the microbiome of an obese mouse and you transplant it into a thin mouse and you feed that thin mouse, the exact same thing that you were feeding it before that thin mouse will now become obese. You have not increased the the calorie consumption. Hmm. You have just changed the microbiome. And you can change that mouse. And so we have so, realized. So, so I just want to put a, a little pin in that because I think I've, I've heard that before, but I never really heard it in the way that you just said it. That you, you It's isocaloric. You keep the calories the same and a mouse with a different um, gut factory inside is going to become obese, which kind of puts a lie to the, the calories in, calories out model to a certain extent, does it not? There is no question. There is no question that the calories in, calories out, calories out model is an oversimplification. It's rational, which is the reason why it is stuck so hard for all these years. But that doesn't mean that it's accurate. And so it's very clear that the makeup of the bacteria within your gut determines the way that you process your food and will determine your weight. And there's, and it's, it's very clear. And so to get back to your original question of, you know, well, what's the deal? Like, what are the benefits of a plant-based diet? Here's what I would say. The greatest predictor of the makeup of your gut is the food that you eat. You show me what you eat and I will show you what your gut makes, what, what your gut looks like. Or if you show me what your gut looks like, I could probably tell you what kind of food you eat. <laughs> so this is this is like when I go to Costco or and I look at people's carts and then I say, yeah, now I know why you look like that. Yeah, that's well, and that's right. And so so, you know, we consume on average, each of us consumes about three pounds of food per day, which if you do the math and we keep it, you know, nice and round and simple, that's a thousand pounds of food per year. That is seventy eight thousand pounds of food during a lifetime that each of us is consuming if we live an average lifespan in the United States. And that is the single greatest predictor of the makeup of your gut. And what we have learned in these last 12 years is that the food that you eat matters a lot. It is ultimately going to determine what is the mix of bacteria that you have. And, and so it, what's cool is that the consumption of plants has been shown in study after study after study to confer an advantage, an advantageous mix of bacteria in the gut. These are bacteria that are less likely to produce obesity, less likely to produce diabetes, protective against cancer, strengthen the immune system, prevent autoimmune disease. And so there, you know, I see these debates that are raging about diets, like particularly I see people raging on about fad diets. Should we be high fat? Should we be low carb? You know, we can all name a couple of them, the paleo diet, whole 30. And so I see people arguing over these things and, you know, it's easy to get yourself lost in terms of what's going on. And here's what I would say. My North star, when I'm, when I, when I want to know what direction to go, I, I look at the effect that something has on the gut microbiome, because at the end of the day, if you alter the gut microbiome in a bad way, what we see is the manifestation of disease. Most major illnesses in the United States have been associated with changes in the gut microbiome, whether it be cancer, 
heart disease, autoimmune disease, autoimmune disease, rheumatoid arthritis, multiple sclerosis, Crohn's disease, ulcerative colitis, things that you would never even imagine, neurologic diseases, autism, Alzheimer's, Parkinson's. And so with all of these major epidemics all being tied back to changes in gut bacteria, I look at the gut and say, well, what is the gut telling me? And what we see are studies that show us that the healthiest mix of bacteria in the gut is seen in patients that are vegan, populations that are vegan. And if you deviate from a vegan diet, it doesn't necessarily mean that you are going to cause dramatic, ridiculous, horrifying changes in the bacteria in your gut. But there are changes. There are changes. There's changes that occur with the consumption of dairy or the consumption of eggs. And if you go down the line. And so, you know, is there a diet that could exist where you're consuming those things? Um, yes. Could you live a long life consuming those things? Yes, it's possible. But the point is that the science is showing us what direction we were meant to move. We were meant to move towards a more plant-based diet. And the problem is that maybe not your listeners, maybe not the people that are checking in on us right now, but in the United States, this is a major problem because the average percentage of calories that are coming from plants in the United States is about 10 to 15%. And that is pathetically low. And it is a complete inverse from what we see in the blue zones, which are all 90 plus percent plant-based. So let's um, go back to, um, to fundamentals. and like, What is the gut microbiome? So... Mm -hmm. I've had a few guests who've talked about it, but it's still, you know, it's only 12 years old that we understand it, that it even like, exists and is important. Um, so it feels kind of, you know, mythological or, or um, imaginary. Can you, can you kind of give us a, a practitioner's understanding of what the thing actually is? Sure. So when we refer to the microbiome, we are referring to the population of microorganisms <clears throat> that live inside our body or could even be on our body. So when we just use the term microbiome, it could include the skin or it could be the mouth or the vagina. There's you know, a lot of different parts of the body that contain their own population of organisms. And so when I say microorganisms, it's, it, we tend to focus on the bacteria because that's actually what we're learning the most about in these last 12 years. But there's a lot more to it than just bacteria. There's also fungi, which are yeast. Um, an example of that is candida, which some people may have heard of. There's a population of microorganisms that are called archaea. And archaea are um, single cellular organisms. They're only made up of one cell. And they've been around for 4 billion years. And you find them in all different parts of our planet. Like you could find them inside a volcano. But somehow we know very, very, very little about these organisms, the archaea. And then the fourth group, so bacteria, yeast, archaea. And then the fourth group is viruses. And so when we talk about things like having 100 trillion microorganisms in and on the body, um, actually, we did not include viruses when we use that number, 100 trillion, because people have estimated that there are a quadrillion viruses in and on the body. And so all of these different populations are living in us, on, on, on our skin, in our mouth, 
um, inside of our intestines and they are interacting with each other and creating a balance. And this, this is a part of who we are. If you were to look at us from a cellular perspective, um, there are data that suggest that we are anywhere from just 10% human to 50% human. So, you know, you could have just as many cells that are coming from these guys as you do your own human cells. And there are some estimates that you may have as many as nine or 10 of these guys for every single one of your human cells. And if that's not enough, then we could go to the DNA level. And um, there are data that suggest that 99% of the DNA that you carry is not your own. Huh. Only 1% of your DNA is actually human DNA. And I think that this explains um, a lot of the reason why genetics did not pan out as well as we thought it would when we unlocked the genetic code uh, about 16, 17 years ago. It did not pan out. We thought that by reading the genetic code that we would understand everything about disease and who would develop what. And we could predict for you, we could tell you, hey, this is what's going to happen during your life. And the answer is you can't. You can't, for most things, for most things, you cannot predict the development of disease. You can say that there is a predisposition. You could say that someone is more likely, but you cannot say that they will definitely develop that disease. And that's because there is an, a complex interaction between your genetic code and the genetic code of all of these microorganisms, they have the ability to do something. And there's a term that we use for this called epigenetics. They have the ability to basically flip the switch on a disease. And so let me use celiac disease as an example. Celiac disease, many of your listeners may know this, is uh, a reaction that your immune system has to gluten. Gluten is found in wheat, barley, and rye. So now I'm not talking about the people that get like a little bit of gas when they have gluten um, or, you know, who think that they are gluten intolerant. I'm talking about an immune reaction where the immune system is actually attacking the intestine because you have consumed gluten. And so celiac disease affects about 1% of the American population right now. But what's interesting is about one out of three of us carry the gene. So one out of three of us carry the gene, 1% of us actually manifest the disease, but that number is climbing really fast. So the question that we all, we have all grappled with as, um, as, uh, caregivers is what is predicting who actually manifests the disease or not? If a third of us carry it, but only 1% actually manifest it, what's predicting? And the answer comes from. Uh, a researcher at McMaster in Toronto named Elena Verdu, who eloquently showed that it is the gut microbiome that determines whether or not you manifest the disease. There are three criteria that you need to meet in order to develop celiac disease. Number one, exposure to gluten. Well, that is every single person in the United States. We've all been exposed to gluten. Number two, the genetics. So that is one out of three of us. And number three, you need alterations in these gut bacteria. And so, so that is a nice example of how alterations in gut bacteria can lead to the manifestation of disease. And we're seeing this with so many different conditions today. Mm. 
I kind of want to stick with the science part here, but I'm going to go somewhere else because I'm just so fascinated about it. I'm wondering, like, have you changed the way you think about yourself or the human being? Like, just philosophically? Totally. Totally. Yes. Um, That is, I love that question. Um, So to answer that question, I have um, felt humbled by the science. I, I feel like the world view that, that many people grew up with of humans being the dominant species on this planet is challenged by what we are learning about these microorganisms. And that's not to say that they are the dominant. I think that the point is that there is a harmony that is intended to exist. There's a balance that is intended to exist in nature And, um, that balance is not with humans being dominant over all other creatures on this planet, um, including trees and, you know, livestock and whatnot. That's, that's not what we're talking about. We need these microorganisms and they need us. And so this is a true symbiotic relationship. And when we destroy that relationship, which basically we have here in the 20th century into the 21st century, when we destroy that relationship, when we ignore them, when we take them for granted, we suffer consequences. And it's hard for us to live a long, healthy life and be happy without these microorganisms. For example, I mean, this sounds crazy, but like literally they affect our mood. I can just tell you from my clinic, like it is appalling the percentage of people who are on antidepressants these days. And and to me, that, believe it or not, is a gut health problem. We're not taking care of our gut and it affects our mood. 95% of serotonin produced in the gut. And so, so the more that I learn, the more that I realize that we need to um, recognize the balance that is intended to exist on our planet and we need to be careful about what we do. So can I... Um echo back those three criteria about celiac for depression, for example, to see, to check my, my understanding. So that one would be to be depressed, you kind of need exposure to depressing things, whether it's sort of, you know, a traumatic event, um, a, a, you know, a child, childhood, adverse childhood experiences, things like that. The second is a genetic predisposition to depression and a third might be the alterations in the gut bacteria, which would predict why, you know, all of us have like shitty backstories, right? We've all right. been hurt. We've all been parented by imperfect humans. We were, you know, let loose in school among cruel little creatures our own age. Um, we've all had life's ups and downs. And the the, the, the protective thing would be this harmonious, um, you know, ecosystem inside us. Like I've done a lot of reading and work around, you know, the protective effects of nature, of being in nature. Right. And it seems like you're saying that the, the, there are protective effects of nature being in us as well. That's exactly right. And you can, and you can't separate the two, you know, you, you can't, you can't take this ecosystem that's inside of us and move it indoors and, you know, put chemicals into your water and, process your food and then expect that there's any way to rebalance 
something that is so unnatural. You know, the, a probiotic is never going to be the solution to the issues that we see in our country right now. And so I, I think that, you know, your assertion with those three criteria, I think that that's very reasonable. And what I would say is that if you have number two, the genetic predispos- predisposition, and you have number three, the alterations in the gut bacteria, number one could be really quite small. You know, there clearly there are people who deal with stress better than others. Clearly, there are people who walk around with anxiety, just a baseline, not even necessary with any particular stressor. Little things can sort of set that person off from an emotional perspective. And so to me, though, I, I really believe that that does link back to the gut. Mm. So the book that's influenced me the most over the past two years is a title called Anti-Fragile uh-huh. by, uh, by Nassim Nicholas Taleb. And this is bringing that up for me that so, you know, we're all exposed to gluten. We can't prevent that typically in this culture. We're all going to have events that are suboptimal happen to us that um, and that the only if if we don't have this resilience in our guts, then we're going to have to sort of bubble wrap ourselves and our children and like, you know, carpet the world rather than, you know, the metaphor of like putting on a pair of shoes of, of being able to, to, to roll with the punches and deal with it. And we're, we're setting ourselves up to be only be able to thrive in a world that could never exist. Yeah. Well, and, and I think that, you know, part of the issue is that if you go back through history and you look at how did we get to this place? um, This is not just one thing, you know, it's, you, you're taking it too far if you pin all of our problems on one particular thing. This is a confluence of factors, but you know, let me start with um, let me start with Louis Pasteur in France, a scientist in the 1850s. The Civil War is about to happen and erupt in the United States, and he is studying the souring of milk and the fermentation of wine. And he starts to understand that it is microorganisms that may be the cause of disease. And that's the first time that we, we, had, we had known about um, bacteria before that time. But that was the first time that we connected the dot to know that it was actually bacteria that may cause disease. Um, prior to that point, we didn't really understand that. And so, so from that point forward, you know, you have to like – look at the fact that in the 19th century, that's what was killing people. People were dying of pneumonia and the flu and things of that variety, infectious diseases. And so all of a sudden it's like, we need to protect ourselves. And so we start doing things. And I'm not saying that this is, um, that these are bad choices. Um, but you know, we start doing things like we, we put chlorine into our water. And, you know, we discover antibiotics. And so, like, for example, antibiotics, that was probably the single greatest discovery in medical history. Instantly, when we discovered penicillin, you can add 15 years to our life expectancy. That is the biggest jump in human history. But the problem is that when you find something that works that well, adds 15 years to your life expectancy, it's natural that you're going to overdo it. 
it's natural that you're going to think that this is the solution to all the problems that exist from a health perspective. And so we start doing these things where, you know, we are sterilizing our water and putting chlorine into it. Chlorine meant to destroy bacteria. What do you think it does when you swallow it down into your gut? Hmm. We are taking, you know, we're, we have antibiotics and we're overutilizing them in our medical clinics. Now you see the factory farming that rises up and the factory farming industry realizes that if you give antibiotics to a cow, that cow will gain 15% more weight. And so 80% of the antibiotics in our country are given to livestock that people turn around and eat. And, you know, you can imagine the residues of those antibiotics are still in that meat that they're eating. Processed foods, like processed foods, um, there are five or 6,000 chemical preservatives that exist, many of which are found in our food and yet not registered with the FDA. And none of these have done, have had adequate study to demonstrate to us that they're safe to consume for a long time. And so, you know, you see this, these are they, are they listed? Are they listed on the packets or do we not even know? Well, they're supposed to be, they're supposed to be. And, and there are, there are about 4,000 registered somewhere in the number. I mean, I'd have to double check where the number's at now, but there's about 4,000, between four and 5,000 um, total chemical preservatives that are registered with the FDA. But here's the thing, 80% of that number that are actually registered, 80% have never had human testing. Only 20% have had any human testing. And when we say human testing, what are we talking about? We're not talking about giving it to someone for years to see if they can tolerate exposure to the chemical. We're talking about like, Hey, they took it for three days and they're still alive. So the standards that we hold for our food industry are completely different than the standards that we hold for our pharmaceutical industry. And that can create issues because we're allowing shortcuts and then people are eating these foods. And how do you, how do you prove with the mix of foods that someone eats on a daily basis, where the average American, 55% of their calories comes from processed food, how, how do you prove which of those chemicals is actually the problem? How, how would you ever do that? That's impossible from a scientific perspective to do that unless you want to just literally eliminate all of them and then reintroduce one at a time. <laughs> and so it just it just creates a lot of issues. But then, you know, beyond that, Howard, it's um, – it's not just it's not just our food. It's not just our food. You know, the car. Like, you know, what percentage of people walked to school who grew up in the 50s and 60s? And what percentage of people walked to school in 2018? Um it's the amount of time that we spend inside. It's the television. It's video games. Like, you know, we're not outside the way that we were before. We're it's also urbanization. And so this is a complicated topic and there's a lot, but, you know, basically what it is, is it's the movement to a modern lifestyle that we have done in a very short period of time. So if you look at human history, us humans have been around for, I mean, it depends on which estimate you believe, but like 2.5 to 3.5 million years. And so when we think about things like the pyramids, the pyramids were only 5,000 years ago. So that is less than 1% of human history right there, 5,000 years, when you hold it up against 2.5 to 3.5 million years. So we evolved a certain way, and then abruptly, all of a sudden, here we are, and it's the you know, 20th century into the 21st century, and we're making all these radical changes. We're moving inside. We're not exercising. 
you know, we sit at a desk for our job. Um, we're eating 55% of our calories are processed food. 30% of our calories are coming from animal products that are pumped up with antibiotics and hormones. Um, and, and then you just look at that and you see what's happening in our country. And I hate to say this, but this is, this is Darwinism. This is survival of the fittest. Hmm. That's really where we're at right now. And, you know, when we talk about evolution, um, I think one of the important points that people need to understand about survival of the fittest and, and evolution is that evolution only cares about you surviving long enough to procreate. It does not matter what happens from an evolutionary perspective from that point forward. You could be completely unhealthy in your 40s, 50s, 60s, and 70s, but if you had children, then you reintroduced your genes into the gene pool for another generation. And so, you know, I guess what I'm trying to say is that if we want health and we want longevity, we need to engineer that. Because evolution is not going to provide that to us. We need to engineer health and longevity and we need to look at ways for people to live longer, healthier lives that are not stricken with disease. Well, it's, I mean, you could say that, but I'm also hearing something else that if we don't want health and longevity, we have to engineer that, which is what we've done, right? In the pursuit of, of, of comforts and modernization, it, so, it sounds like the default for the people in the blue zones who weren't even thinking about it was that you live in harmony with the natural world. And after 3 million years of, of hard knocks, we've kind of figured out how to do that. And even though once we, once our children are able to procreate, we're basically more or less useless, unless you want to look at like, you know, the, the grandmother effect, um, that the the kind of the, the world kind of wants us to be, healthy to have a, to have a, a longer health span than we're currently having. Right. You know, you're, you're absolutely correct. It's unintentional. We have unintentionally, um, engineered an unhealthy lifestyle. And, um, it's interesting to put, you know, the American lifestyle up against the blue zones. And what you see is that the differences are striking. And in many cases we're polar opposites. Hmm. So the people who are the healthiest people in these blue zones, and by the way, for your listeners who may have not read um, uh, this book, what we're talking about is that Dan Buettner started off writing an article for National Geographic uh, about 12 or 13 years ago with the intention of trying to find populations of people on the planet who live to be 100 years old at a rate that is off the charts. And so the term for that is centenarians. He wanted to see a high proportion of centenarians. And so he went and strived to find these geographic locations. And then he wanted to immerse himself and see what they're about. And it's not just about food. This is also about culture. This is about family. It's about faith um, and lifestyle. And so so he initially found three, but subsequently he revised that. And there are five blue zones in the world right now. And they are um, the Nicoya Peninsula in Costa Rica, Sardinia off the coast of Italy, uh, Ikaria and islands in Greece, uh, Okinawa, Japan. And then the fifth one, which is I, my favorite, is Loma Linda, California. Because that's here. That's here in the United States that we have people that are in a blue zone that are living to be 100 years old at a rate that's off the charts. And you go to Loma Linda, California, 
and they are living on average eight to 10 years more than the average person in the United States, but they live here. So what's the deal with that? Well, the answer is that's where the Seventh-day Adventists live. And so the Seventh-day Adventists believe part of their theology is that they will come back to re-inhabit their body someday. And for that reason, they take great care of their body. And what you find is that they um, are predominantly plant-based. And so if they're not vegan, most of them are vegetarian or very, very darn close, possibly pescatarian, but not pescatarian like, like fish every single day. And so that's the way they eat. But even from a cultural perspective, it's about community. They have gatherings on a weekly basis and get together. And obviously their faith is very important to them. And so, you know, there's this entire lifestyle that they have. And it's very different than what we see in the United States where, I mean, even for me, like I know what the Blue Zones say. I know the way that I should live. But I go at this fast pace and it's I don't know how to break out of that, you know. Mm -hmm. So, the, you know, the pace of like I woke up at five o'clock this morning to do work and and see my patients. And, you know, here I am doing this podcast and I'm going to do probably more work after this. So, yeah, well, it's, I, I, I like to think of the metaphors like we're all trying to um, play, you know, basketball in an ice hockey rink. Yeah, that there's kind of there's there's no way. I mean, we could I guess you could just sort of drop out and say, well, I figured this out. I'm going to go find a community and and drop out of the modern world, but I kind of, you know, you as a healer and, and, and me as a promoter of healing, I think we feel like we have an obligation to kind of, you know, stick it out and, and try to shift the, the culture at large a little bit. Right. So, yeah, but I think that we each have the opportunity with our, within our own households to establish a culture. Like you have a culture in your household that's established. And, you know, I, I know that, um, doing homeschooling is a big part of your family culture. I'm sure that it is. And, you know, our household, we have our culture. And so there's the things that are considered to be normal within our house that maybe wouldn't be considered to be normal outside of our home. For example, you know, I just posted a video yesterday of my son eating broccoli sprouts. He's, hmm. he's 18 months old and he's eating raw broccoli sprouts. I mean, that's, that's amazing to me, but, um, he, he actually enjoys them. So, and that's normal within our house. Great. You have to send me, is that on Instagram? It was a story, so it's already disappeared. But yeah, you know what? I can find it and send it to you, though. All right. We can, we, we'll link to that for, for, the incre yeah. for the incredulous. There you go. The incredulous parents who are like, I, I can't get my 18-year-old to eat broccoli. Well, and that's, you know, that brings up an interesting conversation in itself, which is where do habits and taste buds and things of that variety come from? And the answer actually, believe it or not, is that it starts in our gut. And believe it or not, it starts in mom's gut. I would make the argument that um, the way that a child eats and the opportunity for gut health in a newborn child actually starts one to two years before that child is even conceived. Hmm. Because it's the food that mom is eating during that period of time that ultimately will determine the makeup of mom's gut and the food that mom eats during pregnancy, it will be normal. That will be the normal food for that child. And so like my wife was eating vegetarian during pregnancy, very, very close to vegan. And she was eating broccoli sprouts. We, we really believe in the power of broccoli sprouts, the health benefits. I mean, for people that are listening, what we're talking about is taking the seed from broccoli 
and watering it so that literally it sprouts after like three to five days. And it looks kind of like an alfalfa sprout. It's extremely bitter. And we have learned in our household to embrace and love that bitterness because it's a chemical. It's a plant-based chemical, a phytochemical called sulforaphane that is probably the most powerful anti-cancer chemical that exists. And so we love broccoli sprouts in our household. And my wife was eating them every day during pregnancy. And so here it is, my son. This is proof of principle. Like this food to 99% of Americans, they would say that's disgusting or it doesn't taste good. That's what they would say because it's so bitter. Um, but, but in our household, this was normal for my wife during pregnancy. This was normal for my wife when she was breastfeeding him. And now here he is and he's 18 months old and he's eating broccoli sprouts. It's amazing. Yeah. We had a little side business. My son started doing, um, like, you know, microgreens and he was growing broccoli sprouts and it was very hard for me to let him sell them because like, there's a limit to how much you can get for a little bag of sprouts at the health food store. And, right. But I knew so much more. Like I had this, you know, this uneven knowledge where I knew how valuable they were. Like, oh, just, I'll, you know, I'll just keep these. Right, right. Nice. You know, a little stash on the side. And so I guess it makes, it makes sense. So if you're feeding, you know, we're talking about culture, like, you know, the culture of your household, but also this, it's the same word for like what Pasteur was studying, like these, these cultures the, uh, within us that if, if they are, you know, whatever we feed is what, what remains and thrives and grows, then if it wants to keep getting fed and it's got access to all our neurotransmitters, then it makes sense that it can like place orders, right? Like we're the, you know, we're the line cook and the, the order comes in saying, I need, I need more plants, you just summarized it perfectly. That's exactly what it is, is that these bacteria speak our language using these neurotransmitters. And so they have the ability to control our impulses. And this is why people who um, try to make radical changes in their diet, if you eat a lot of, a, a lot of candy, a lot of sugar, you're going to have a gut microbiome that's built wanting those wanting those calories, wanting that processed sugar. And it's going to be hard for you to make any sort of radical change because you're going to have that craving, that impulse to want to get more of that because this is survival for those bacteria. And so, you know, these bacteria in our gut, they need energy just like we need energy. Their energy source is the food that we eat. And so if you feed them unhealthy food, if you feed them fat or processed sugar, you're going to have bacteria that are really good at processing fat, processing sugar. And on the flip side, if you feed them, if you feed them plants, you're going to have bacteria that are incredibly efficient at taking that plant and getting all of the health benefits out of it. And so that means all of the different phytochemicals of which there's thousands and we know very little about them other than we believe that all of them or most of them are very healthy. And also my favorite part of nutrition, um, what I believe to be the greatest secret in nutrition that no one is talking about are things called short chain fatty acids. And so, you know, most people have the conception. I even had the conception after I finished all my medical training that when you consume fiber, it's in one end and out the other. And so we have to start off with this and say that fiber to use the word fiber is like to use the word protein. You're describing a family. 
not all fiber is the same, just like not all protein is the same. And so when you consume fiber, though, there are specific types of fiber that um, we use the term now prebiotic, P-R-E, biotic, uh, as opposed to probiotic. And so this prebiotic fiber gets down to the colon unchanged and then is transformed by the bacteria inside of you, magically transformed into these short-chain fatty acids. And these short-chain fatty acids, if you look them up on the internet, if you look up the research studies that are available and you go down the laundry list of medical conditions in our country, I would make a strong argument that you would see an improvement in most of the major diseases if people were getting adequate amounts of fiber. And so, you know, like there are clear-cut data that suggests that they lower our cholesterol, that they prevent heart disease, that they make our immune system stronger. And because our immune system is stronger, you are less likely to have autoimmune disease and you're less likely to have cancer. There's even evidence that they directly uh, protect us from cancer, such as colon cancer. So it's like the gut, there's gut bacteria that act extremely rationally in that they would say, well, we don't want our host to die or to become so you know, cancer stricken that they can no longer eat. So we are, we are going to adjust our diets to support our environment, our ecosystem that we know supports us. Those bacteria sound a lot smarter than human beings. Well, you know, at the end of the day, um, at the end of the day, they are passengers in the sense that they can only thrive, survive and thrive based upon what you choose to put into your mouth and swallow down. And so, so if you choose to consume more plants, then you will have those bacteria that are designed to, to help you live a long and healthy life. Um, but on the flip side, if you're consuming, you know, um, animal products and processed foods and processed sugars, you're going to have this divergence. It's a different type of bacteria. And that's what we're seeing in the Western world is that there's, they've done studies where they compare the, the microbiome of a Westerner to a, um, there's actually, believe it or not, still tribal, native tribal people that live on our planet. For example, there's a population called the Hudzu. And they've done studies where they look at the microbiome in the United States and compare it to the Hudzu. And they see these striking differences. For example, the Hudzu have up to 1,600 different species within their gut. And in the United States, we are a fraction of that. And so, you know, what is it about what they're doing? Well, the Hudzu, they don't have exposure to processed foods. They don't have any of the sort of modern things that we have in the Western world. And they're consuming 150 grams of fiber per day. And here we are in the United States consuming on average, if you're a female, 18 grams of fiber per day. If you're a male, 22 grams of fiber per day. It's a fraction of the way that we evolve to eat. And we're not getting the health benefits that we should. Mm. So there is so much that I want to talk to you about, but I want to make sure we get some practical tips for people who are freaking out right now. Uh, okay. <laughs> so let's, let's take the person who... Uh, resembles your description of, you know, the sugar eater who's who tr keeps trying to get off sugar, but finds that there's this, you know, uh, the, the, the rebound effect of the bacteria that are in there. Like what, what can people do if they want to improve 
their their gut health. And let's let's start with uh, with food, and then maybe there's some other lifestyle things as well, like you mentioned the water and uh, you know being outdoors. Totally. So so first of all, let me say that the greatest predictor of a healthy gut is going to be the food that you eat. In fact, there was a study that was done by Rob Knight, who's a researcher at the University of California, San Diego, and he has uh, this project. It's called the American Gut Project um, that allows him to have not only microbiome data from across our country, but also um, information about lifestyle, the way that people live, the way that they eat. And so he put a bunch of variables into an equation without any bias and asked the question, what is the number one predictor of a healthy gut? And what he found was that the number one predictor was the diversity of the plants that you eat. And so, you know, if there is one take home point from this of developing a healthy gut, that's where I would start is the diversity of the plants that you eat. So you can be a vegan, but if you literally only eat kale all day long, you are not going to be that healthy. We need to look for opportunities to diversify the, um, the types of plants that we consume. If you go back to the person who has, uh, you know, I would describe as a sugar addiction and they're looking to improve their gut health. I would start by saying, look, we want to introduce healthy, a healthy diet. We want to be more plant-based, but we need to make these changes over the course of time. You can't just wake up one day and do this because otherwise you're going to have that rebound effect that you and I have been talking about. But one of the important things is to try to get rid of, of the really processed sugars. And that includes artificial sweeteners. Artificial sweeteners, just because they have zero calories, does not mean that they have no influence on your gut microbiome. Mm. We have seen in some of our studies that people who use artificial sweeteners have a worsening of their diabetes. How does that make sense? Like we didn't, we didn't really get that. How is that possible that your diabetes would get worse when you're consuming a zero calorie sweetener? And the answer is that you're building up your gut, your gut microbiome to basically get more out of sugar because you're eating these processed yeah, they're calorie free, but you're consuming a sweetener that basically builds up those bacteria. So you have to get away. If you're that person who has uh, a habit with, with sugar, you have to try to get away from the artificial sweeteners. And what I would look to do is replace, if you have a sweet tooth, replace it with plants that are, that are good for you. And, um, that also are sweet. And so, you know, I would be looking particularly to berries and I think, you know, there's clear cut data that, that demonstrate that there's reduced risk of diabetes associated with the consumption of different types of berries, raspberries, strawberries, et cetera. So that's one of the places that I would start. But if we're talking in general, you know, excluding just that particular person and just talking in general about building a healthy gut, to me, I think that we all need to strive to consume a diversity of plants. And then the other well, lifestyle can, can, factors. Can I ask that, about that before we go on? So, yeah. My first thought was that, well, it doesn't, isn't that contradicted by like blue zone cultures where they just have like, they're basically eating more or less the same thing every day. Like when I think about a diversity of diet, I think, oh, I'll tie today and Chinese tomorrow and Mexican on Thursday and, um, you know, Italian on Friday. Um, how, like how, help, help me understand what appears to me to be a little bit of a paradox. Well, I think that there's a complexity. There's there's a complexity to it. Um, 
that needs to be acknowledged when you're discussing, you know, the blue zones, because they're not shopping at Whole Foods, you know, as you said, like they're growing their own food, but they have certain advantages that we don't have. They're growing their own food. They have healthy soil. Your, your food is only going to be as healthy as the soil in which it's grown. And so you could eat, you know, organic, but if it's coming from um, nutrient poor, you know, burnt out soil, it's not going to do that much good. You know, it's not going to do nearly as much good for you as it could if you had a compost pile in your backyard and grew your own garden. And so, so I don't think that the only thing necessary to have a healthy gut is the diversity of plants. Obviously, there's more complexity to it than that. And I really think that one of the more underrated things is, you know, the health of the soil in terms of the plant that has grown. Mm-hmm. Um, th- that needs to be acknowledged that, you know, not all plants, like just because it's a tomato doesn't mean that it's the same as any other tomato. You know, I'm sure we've all had the experience where you um, – either you or a friend grows a tomato in their garden and you taste it and you're like, Oh my gosh, right? that tastes completely different. And so, you know, and there's a reason for that, which is that the, the soil was much more healthy. So, so I, I think that there's, there's a lot to this and it's not as simple as, as one factor in the equation, mm-hmm. you know, the diversity of the plants is a big part of it. We have whittled down, the way that we eat over the years, you know, most people in the United States, a salad is lettuce, iceberg lettuce, and maybe some tomatoes on top. And they're not even putting a carrot or a cucumber or anything else. And so, and that might be all the plants on their entire plate, or it might be something that comes out of a can. Mm-hmm. So, so, um, so you're saying I think that while, while we're eating within the industrial agricultural system and we're not, uh, we're not back to horticulture, either our own gardens or local, that diversity of plants is a is is a great marker for the kind of uh, diversity of of life that could grow um, a healthy biome. Absolutely, and 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 the reason why is each of those plants is going to confer its own unique um, health advantages um, beyond just the bacteria that that are naturally resident on the plants, but also the, you know, mix of phytochemicals, antioxidants, vitamins, minerals, all of those different things. You know, people may not think about their plants this way, but um, our our science has shown us through the years that the, the bacteria that are living on these plants and help them to grow are the exact same bacteria that are part of a healthy gut microbiome. For example, if you go to your store and you pick up organic cabbage, take it home, chop it up, put it into a mason jar, and cover it in a sea salt water solution. And you have to submerge the cabbage. But you add literally nothing else. Three ingredients, cabbage, sea salt, and clean water. That's it give it a week, it will turn into sauerkraut. And so that fermentation process, that transformation of the food from cabbage into something that is tart and um, complex in terms of its flavor, flavor, a little bit acidic, 
that transformation occurs because of the bacteria that are naturally resident on the cabbage. And what's interesting is if you go and you look at probiotics, many of the probiotics have things like, for example, next time you're at the store, look at them, lactobacillus, lactobacillus plantarum. Guess where lactobacillus plantarum comes from? It comes from plants. <laughs> and you will find it resident, you will find it resident on cabbage. So if you eat that cabbage raw, you will get some lactobacillus plantarum. But if you culture that cabbage, if you ferment that cabbage, you will magnify the lactobacillus plantarum because you will give it an opportunity to multiply and grow and become more dominant. Mm. And so, so I guess the point being that the diversity of plants makes sense because it's not just the nutrients. It's also the diversity of the different uh, bacteria that are resident on the plant that could confer advantages for your health. Gotcha. So I'm I'm, I'm just kind of you know, a, a fountainhead of objections right now. So I'm hearing Dr. Uh, Alan Goldhammer in my head uh, warning me about sodium. So is is there? Yeah, and and yet the you know lacto fermentation is done with 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 salt, right? There's other forms of fermentation that will do you know boiling water and vinegar. But, uh, you know, the, the kind that, that's sort of easy and gives you all these cultures is done with salt. What's the – is there a trade-off there? There is, I mean, I think that there is a trade-off. Um, and it's an interesting discussion, but here's what I would say. When you ferment your food, this is not going to be the main course. This is not going to be the dominant part of your plant uh, – of your plate. Mm-hmm. This, this is meant to be a garnish. Gotcha. When I consume sauerkraut, I am um, basically taking usually four or five solid bites worth and putting that in the corner of my plate, and that's what I'm consuming. And so it's not a big bowl. Um, so I've, been, other, I've been doing it wrong for years then. <laughs> do you do a lot more than that? Yeah, I kind of – it's kind of addictive. I'll like uh... – <laughs> Oh, it's totally addictive. No, so and so so the flip side is if you if you were to take it to an extreme, um, go to Eastern culture, go to Korea, and so like I love kimchi. I'm sure you do too. Mm-hmm. Um, but in their culture, consumption of fermented food is part of every single meal, and it has a much more dominant part of their um, of their plate of you know what is considered a normal diet for them, and so. There are some concerns about the possibility, the connection with things such as stomach cancer. But here's what I would say. Here's my retort to that. Number one, I don't think that there's many people in the United States who are going to come anywhere close to consuming that level of fermented food that they are in Korea. Um, number two, the, the number one life expectancy in the world right now is Japan, who consumes a lot of fermented foods. And the, the country that's supposed to overtake Japan in the next few years to have the longest life expectancy is actually Korea. Hmm. And so even if there is an increased odds, like I think that you know this is something that I'm sure you understand and, and many of your readers who don't necessarily spend a lot of time with research, the thing you have to understand is that if you have an odds ratio, if you have an increased risk and they say you are two times more likely – to develop this stomach cancer, but the odds goes from one in one in five thousand to two in five thousand. Right, and the question that is, what's is, what's the base rate? Right, 
Right. Exactly. And, 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 and if so, you're looking to scare someone, and we do this too in the plant-based community, we'll say, you know, with uh, you have an 18% increased risk of something. Um, when when And it sounds like, you know, it's a big deal because we're, we're thinking from right. one to 100 as opposed to from like one in a trillion to, to you know, 18 in a trillion. Exactly. That's exactly right. And so, so, you know, any food, any food comes with risk. Right. Like I was touting broccoli sprouts, but it's possible for E. coli infection to be transmitted with broccoli sprouts. It, it, you know, we have to think about things like there are more than 100,000 deaths from people using drugs the way that they were prescribed to be used by their doctor on a yearly basis. And we don't talk about that yet. You would not believe how many questions I get from people that are fearful that they make their own sauerkraut and they're going to hurt themselves hmm. by making their own sauerkraut or by making their own their own kombucha or something of that variety. Let's let's talk about kombucha because my wife makes kombucha. I think it's one of the coolest things in our kitchen. Is this this giant uh, scoby in a jar? And then I was hearing, I think it was on Nutrition Facts, a couple of videos from Dr. Greger that uh, he doesn't really recommend kombucha. Uh, but I really enjoyed drinking kombucha, so I would like you to <laughs> to tell me um, good news about that habit. Well, I uh, um, I do drink kombucha. Um, I think that uh, the the critical piece with kombucha is that moderation is important. So people who think that kombucha is going to um, be some life saving beverage that's going to transform your health are taking it a little bit too far. And if you consume an excessive amount of kombucha, I do have some concerns about the effects that that could have on the body. For example, kombucha is very acidic. Um, and so I, I do worry like an excessive consumption of kombucha could have effects on our dental health mm. and erode away enamel. And so I think that, you know, we need to be um, moderate in our consumption of kombucha. But that being said, I, I do think that there's benefit to kombucha. I do believe that, you know, this is something that not only introduces probiotics, but actually one of the more underrated parts are the healthy acids. And so essentially this is an environment that's designed to promote a healthy gut. If you look in the colon, if you were to look at the colon microscopically moment to moment, what you would see is when you consume fiber, consume plants, you know, we talk about that as being an alkaline, uh, an alkaline diet, mm -hmm. but actually what happens is you produce these short chain fatty acids that actually lower the pH, meaning acidify the colon. So the colon actually becomes a little bit more acidic when you consume plant-based foods. And that's actually a good thing because what you see on a microscopic level, if you were to be sort of tracking what's going on moment to moment, is you would see the emergence of more healthy bacteria and you would see that the unhealthy bacteria actually um, get pushed to the side because of the environment that you have created. So I do think that's one of the advantages of kombucha is, is so actually, actually, the acidic. A little, a little bit of, uh, of stress, and I hear this a lot about like, um, you know, cancer treatments that um, that cancer is a very weak cell. So if you stress it in certain ways, then um, then the stronger cells survive. It sounds like that we, if you if you create some sort of stressful environment in the in the gut, that 
that preferentially favors the kind of, of bacteria that we want, as long as you, you do it in moderation and in specific ways. Yeah, I think that that's, I think that that's right. Um, that doesn't mean that I would encourage people to go out and drink, you know, um, apple cider vinegar or something of that variety to try to acidify their colon. Um, but I do think that one of the potential benefits of kombucha is, is the acidifying quality that could confer a advantage in the gut microbiome. So um, I don't want to take this too long. I would love to have you back to just do a very practical uh, interview, if you'd if you'd be up for that. To uh, of course to um, yeah to you know add add more things to do to your already crazy Western lifestyle. Um, yeah. But if like, can we end with a couple more um, like top level tips for people who want to improve their their microbiome health? Okay. So um, beyond striving to consume a diversity of plants, I uh, am a believer in filtering our water. And so I, I, I see chlorine, like we touched on this a little bit earlier in our conversation, chlorine destroys bacteria. And so it was great for cleaning up our water supply because people were dying from um, infection related to our water supply. But... At this point in 2018, we need to start looking at that as a as a way to transport our water safely to our home. And then at that point, you need to remove the chlorine from the water before it is consumed. And so I do think that that's an important part of the process. The best type of filter is uh, something called reverse osmosis because it can take away the small molecules like chlorine. Whereas using a charcoal filter um, like a Brita, a charcoal filter will will remove large size chemicals, but it will not remove the chlorine or the fluoride from your water. So that will still be present. So, even, so even I would if, encourage even if you no longer smell it, doesn't mean that the molecules aren't there. No, it's still there. Yeah, even if you no longer smell it, it could still be there. Now, if you boil your water, if you boil it and then you let it return to room temperature, then um, that's one of the ways to remove the chlorine and the fluoride from your water. And that's a great that's a great approach to use if you need to clean up some water for the purpose of you know fermenting sauerkraut or something like that yeah. or or making your kombucha, you just boil the water and then you let it return to room temperature. But for most of us, you know you're going to be drinking more water than that. And so high level tips, I believe in filtering our water. I believe that we need to be drinking a lot more water, um, not adding stuff to it, just water. This is the healthiest drink that exists. And so I wake up every morning and I have two big monstrous glasses of water to start my day. And I'm, I'm a big coffee drinker. There you go. <laughs> Boom. So perfect. I love it too. And it's a mason jar. That's awesome. Yeah. I, I um, find with the mason so, jar, it, 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 it mocks me. What if I just, if I have it in my like stainless steel thermos, I have no idea how I'm doing. So this yeah. is like, yeah, you've only had a third of me. Yeah. I, I love mason jars because I, I, there's just something about them and they're not expensive and they're fun to drink out of. So, um, so anyway, I, I believe that we should all be waking up in the morning, have two monstrous glasses of water. I'm a big coffee drinker. And ever since I started doing this, I actually feel so much more energy in the morning. So I think that's part of it. I think we need to be careful about our medicines. People may not realize that things like non-steroidal drugs, like, uh, ibuprofen, Advil, Aleve, all can have a serious effect on the gut microbiome. Um, oral contraceptive pills, 
Um, and of course, antibiotics, we need to be careful about our antibiotics. You know, I, I don't know that this is your community because, um, this is plant yourself, but I will say like for anyone who's a consumer of animal products, I really believe that we need to, if you are going to consume animal products, then you need to, um, go organic because that's the only way that you can be sure that it's free of hormones and antibiotics. Mm. So. Right. And you know, while, while we're on that topic, um, you know, you mentioned like the paleo and whole 30 and all these fads, and we can we can sort of duke it out, and I you know I think their science is 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 very questionable, um, and yeah. very you know highly reductionist, but it, like they they can find stuff, right, to say that well we need this we need meat because it does this for us or it's got this or it's got this concentration, like I I don't I don't think they're completely. Um, I don't. Th- I think they believe their their uh, their assertions, even though I don't think they're they're mostly correct. Um, but with the when I look at the the evidence in the gut microbiome, I don't see anything that someone who's into sort of paleo or you know the sort of body hacking community could look at. And you, you know, when you when you said at the very beginning of this conversation that like that's your north star, is there is there the same sort of debate? Um, for people who are seriously looking at the microbiome, that maybe that some meat or small amounts or fish or anything like that is 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 beneficial, or is it just so clear that animals animal foods harm our microbiome and plant foods help it? Well, I you know that is so. You know, let's just try to be as fair as we possibly can and remove any sort of bias going into answering this question. And because, you know, the thing is there are things that we don't know and there's a lot that we're going to learn in the next 20, 30 years. I'm looking forward to seeing where things go. But what I would say to answer your question is this. um, I have not seen studies that have clearly demonstrated to me any sort of health advantage in the gut microbiome with the consumption of animal products. I have not seen that. What I've seen are studies that show us that there are clear cut changes even between a vegetarian and a vegan diet. And I would look at diets as being on a spectrum. On one end would be a vegan diet. And on the other end, I would put the modern Western diet. Hmm. And so it's there is a there is a gradient that exists and this is not like you know this is not levels this is not just moving up in increments this is a this is just this is a gradient it moves fluidly and so the closer that you are to a vegan diet from what we can tell the healthier the gut microbiome is and what we have is we have data that clearly show that um, the consumption of animal products leads to gut bacteria that love and thrive in an environment with bile salts. So bile is produced by the liver. It's a digestive juice. And the intention of bile is to absorb fat from our food. And so bile is released by the liver in response to a fatty meal, which is why people that have gallbladder issues, if they eat a fatty meal, they get an exacerbation of their gallbladder pain. 
So bile will help to absorb this fat, but then it ultimately travels down to the colon and is excreted in your stool, which is what makes your stool in some ways brown. It gets processed. Bile gets processed. It's not the original form when it comes out of your bottom and it becomes a secondary bile salt. The more animal products that you consume, the more bile secretion there will be by your liver and the more bacteria that you will have that are designed to transform that bile from a primary bile salt to a secondary bile salt. And what we have seen is that there are consequences to secondary bile salts in the stool and that they can lead to cancer. Mm. And so now going back to your original question and, you know, as I said, trying to be unbiased and trying to be as fair as humanly possible. Um, I haven't seen clear cut data with regard to fish. Um, it may exist. I just haven't seen it yet. After we get off of this conversation, I'm probably going to go and look it up because now that we're talking about it, I, got, I have to could, know. Could, could you email me? Because tomorrow afternoon I'm interviewing uh, Walter Longo, who's uh -huh. um, you know the longevity diet, and he's kind of a, a proponent of small amounts of fish. And, and yeah. I would, I, I'm very curious if there's if there's data that you find that we can we can well, and so so. Totally. And, and so I can understand, I can understand because there are population-based studies, there are epidemiologic studies where in some cases they demonstrate benefits to the consumption of fish, particularly when we're referring to a cold water fish that's a fatty fish such as a sardine or salmon. And so really what they're referring to are the animal-based omega-3s. Um, the omega-3 fats. And so, um, so I, you know, that, that to me would be interesting to find out what is the effect on the gut microbiome of consumption of, say, salmon, you know, on a moderate basis. Um, there may be a place where that is beneficial. If I were to say that there's an animal product that's likely to provide benefit, mm -hmm. that's what I would look at. All right. Thank you. Uh, so any, any, any other high-level lifestyle tips before we clo close th this episode? Well, um, I think that fermented food should be a part of the American diet. I think that we should all um, not make it a dominant part of our diet, but we should all look to start to incorporate fermented and foods. And do we, do we have to like shred the, do it, shred the cabbage and do it ourselves, or can we buy it in a jar? You can buy it, but it's you never. It's never going to be as good as if you made it yourself. Um, you know the best the best sauerkraut that I have is always the stuff that I make so, myself. So do I need a um, like a, the the two hundred dollar crock with the stone on top, or can can you make sauerkraut in just normal household to you know imp, uh, implements? Sure, um, you, you can make it with stuff that you have at home. And so, you know, let me just walk you through the process real quick in case people are interested. Basically, what you're going to do is you're going to buy some organic, some organic cabbage and um, you're going to bring it home, peel off the top layer or two. Um, but you're not going to aggressively try to clean the cabbage because that's where all the healthy bacteria are. So it's reasonable if you want to gently rinse it off a little bit, but you're not going to try to like aggressively clean it. And chop it up into pieces that are the size that you would like for your sauerkraut. So me personally, I like a crunchy kraut. I like it kind of thick. 
So I, I tend to cut it up into thicker slices, but some people like it thin and a little bit more um, soggy. And so you can do that, whatever you prefer. So, but once you, once you cut it up, all you have to do is get that mason jar, like the one that you have, that's a, that, that's a quart size mason jar that you showed me. And so take that mason jar and start packing it with this, with this cabbage. Now you don't have to add anything else. Me personally, I like to cut up a couple cloves of garlic and stuff it in there. Sometimes I'll put some caraway seeds in there as well. Um, but you know, at the end of the day, you literally can just put cabbage in there and you put it into a jar and, um, Ideally, you try to really sort of pack it in there tight. And so you, if you have something that you can use that's slightly smaller than the mouth of your mason jar to just push it down, that's what you do. Uh, like it looks to me like a, uh, a can of beans would be perfect. Yeah, that makes, that makes sense. And so you get that really packed in. And then the key is that you need to actually put some sort of weight on top of the cabbage to keep it held down. If you go to Amazon, you can buy these things called pickle pebbles or fermentation weights. They also call them fermentation weights. And so they're not very expensive. You can get four of them for, I think, 20 bucks. And so you get one of those and you put one on top. Um, If you want to use something from your household, you know, you could certainly do that. I mean, you could literally take a rock from outside and clean it <laughs> off and put that on top. And, uh, but basically the key is that the cabbage needs to stay submerged. It needs to be underwater. And so once you have that, then what I do is I use, uh, uh, sea salt and I have purified water from our reverse osmosis filter. But again, you could, you could boil water and let it return back to room temperature and I'll, I'll mix the two and I don't use any, I'm, you can find on the internet proportions. I don't use proportions. I do it by taste. And so to me, the taste that I'm shooting for is enough salinity, enough salt taste for me to be able to tell that the salt is clearly there. Um, but not so much that I wouldn't, you know, literally take a swig and swallow it and drink yeah. it. So, you know, I, I tend to try to strive to be on the lower side of salinity for the reasons that you mentioned earlier. There's not really a health advantage to getting more salt from your fermentation. It's just really for flavor that you're doing it. So, so I mix the water and the salt separate from the jar of the cabbage. Cold or hot? Um, You could do either. You could do either. I, you know, many times because I'm taking my water straight from the water filter, I do it cold. But in the past when I didn't have that water filter, I would, I would boil water and I would add salt to it. The only challenge there is that if you're doing it, you know, obviously boiling water, you just have to be very careful when you're tasting it um, to make sure you don't burn yourself. So, so then once you have your, your water solution then, and you have your cabbage that's, you know, basically weighed down with something, you just pour the water solution over the top and you cover the whole thing. But, but you got to leave some headroom. So I'll always leave a couple inches of headroom. I don't fill the cabbage all the way to the top. I'll fill it typically about 75% of the way and, um, and cover up with water, but always leave a little bit of room at the top because when the cabbage starts to ferment, it will actually swell up a little bit. And so the water could actually tip over the top of your, of your jar if you don't leave some room. So, and then what you do is if you're using a traditional Mason jar and you have your little lid, you put your lid on, but you don't, you don't clamp it down super tight. You make it so that if pressure builds up inside the jar, that pressure can be released because the lid will pop open a little bit. 
Because I, um, I, I went through this, uh, you know, lacto-fermentation um, kick a few years ago, and I ended up, like, going to, to brew stores and, and getting these airlocks, and yeah, and it was, they were really hard to clean, and they made a huge mess. This sounds much easier. Yeah, and so, well, so the airlock, the advantage is that you basically set it and forget it. So um, you once you seal off your... Um, your cabbage, then you uh, basically can put the cabbage wherever it is that you're going to ferment it and just leave it alone. But if you don't have that, you can you can also burp your cabbage on a daily basis. And so what that means to burp it is to just go and open up the jar once a day and just to release any pressure that builds up. What you'll see if you start to ferment sauerkraut is that typically after two to three days, you will start to see a lot of bubbles in there. And that's a beautiful thing. That's a reaction. That's a natural reaction from the fermentation process that it produces carbon dioxide gas. And if you think about it, fermented foods don't produce nearly uh, as much gas when you eat them as non-fermented foods. Like you eat cabbage compared to sauerkraut. The sauerkraut will, will not produce nearly as much gas in your body. And I, I like to think, I mean, I don't know if this is scientifically accurate or not. I think that it is actually that during the fermentation process, a lot of that gas is actually already released because it's a form of pre-digestion in a way. And so, um, so anyway, typically what I'll do, one thing I'll say, like every food that you can ferment has different conditions that make it thrive. Sauerkraut likes cooler temperature. And so when you're fermenting sauerkraut, ideally the temperature is less than 70 degrees. You can do that in your home in a closet. I like to put it in my garage. Um, I just put a batch out yesterday and I'm hoping that everything's going to work out. It'll probably be my last batch of this particular year because down here in South Carolina, it's starting to warm up and, and you know, spring is clearly here. So after about a week of, of the sauerkraut, um, you know, fermenting, I start to taste it. And so you will know that fermentation is working when you taste it and it tastes like sauerkraut instead of salty cabbage. <laughs> uh, but what's cool is that if you just give it time and you let it continue to ferment, it will keep getting better and better. And it's hard for me to describe what this means, uh, but for whatever reason, it just tastes better the longer you let it go. And it's like wine. Like how do you describe that a wine has been aged better i don't know how to describe that but it clearly tastes better you know and that's the same is true for sauerkraut right yeah you can you can sniff the screw off top but, uh, yeah <laughs> exactly I, I'm, I'm giving i'm giving away my uh you know expertise around wine but, uh, yeah i think i think i have a, a, a better nose for, for fermented foods than uh... there you go so yeah so anyway i i think that we should all strive to try fermented foods and just like when it comes to plants i really believe that a, a diversity of fermented foods is a good goal to have in mind each each type of fermented food is going to confer different types of bacteria different types of advantages so um and you know and then just to kind of close things out there there are clear-cut data that show that good sleep habits confer advantages to the microbiome hmm. That exercise, that exercise confers advantages to the microbiome. 
that spending time outside and that sun exposure confers advantages to the microbiome. If you walk within four or five feet of a tree, your body is, you know, you, this is like, it sounds like voodoo, but you are coming into contact with the, the bacteria and the microbes that are resident on that tree when you stand four to five feet away from it. And so just by going outside and leaving our hyper sterile environment in our home, you have the opportunity to come into contact with microbes that could be of benefit to you. Ooh, I know what I'm going to do as soon as we get off this call. You go for a, go for a hike. Yeah. Just go out in my backyard and hug some trees. Yeah. Yeah. I've kind of become a tree hugger and, and you know, I, I really never thought that I, I, that's not who I conceived myself to be, but, um, yeah, but you, th- you thought you were believer. you and not a uh, hundred trillion microbes too. That's, that's true. That's true. Yeah. No, that's kind of changed my perspective on myself. So, yeah. Awesome. Well, well, this is Dr. B. This has been an amazing conversation. I love, um, I love the, the thought that you've put into explaining it and describing it. I love the, um, kind of the gravitas and authority with which you, you kind of lay out what we know and are humble about what we don't know. And I really would love to have a, a continued conversation. I feel like this, if I didn't have other things to do, this would be a great, uh, in, you know, inaugural long form three, four hour, you know, rich roll Tim Ferriss type conversation because there's so much more to go into. Um, nice. But I really, I well, really I... appreciate the, the, the work you're doing. And before we let you go, how can people follow you, find out more about you? And what, what, else, what else do you offer people who are not in South Carolina um, in, in the way of, of continuing education? Well, you know, I guess the bottom line is I just have felt that there's a message that needs to be shared. And so that's what I'm currently doing. And, you know, at this particular point, I mean, I do have people that reach out to me and, and want me to help them, you know, individually. And I'm not yet doing that, although I, I do hope to be able to do that sometime soon. But at this point, what I would encourage people to do is come find me on Instagram. Um, my uh, name is The Gut Health MD. Come find me on Instagram. Come find me on Facebook. Follow me. Like my Facebook account, um, which is also uh, Dr. B, The Gut Health MD, which you can also find at The Gut Health MD on Facebook. Um, you'll find from my Instagram account a link to my webpage, thegothealthymd.com. I have a newsletter that's been going out. Um, I actually kind of fun right now on Instagram, I'm doing a tournament of plants. And so I picked out 16 plants that I love and I'm having them basically go head to head against each other. And I'm letting people use the vote feature on Instagram to decide who wins. So for example, uh, on Friday it was kale versus spinach and it was a super close vote. Um, hundreds of votes, this, and the it was decided by less than 10 in terms of the difference, but spinach won, which really surprised Ooh. me. So all of you people who feel and, like your, your votes don't count for national politics, here's a chance to redeem yourselves. Yeah, exactly. And so right now, like actively right now, while you and I are talking, we have black beans taking on cabbage. And I honestly, this is going on for another two hours, and it's been so close today. It's been back and forth between the two, which is really cool. I mean, like – you know, what are the chances that it's like literally 50-50, but it's been 50-50 all day. Um, and, 
Uh, last time I checked, black beans was up by a little bit, but uh, cabbage could still pull it out. So we'll see what happens. Okay. Well, I don't think I didn't, no one listening to this will have a chance to uh, to affect those outcomes unless you believe in um, non temporality and nonlinearity of reality. In which case, as long as you don't know the answer, you can affect the, the, the past and the future. Well, you could do that. And also the, the tournament, you know, I guess the reason why I'm sharing it is just because it's, it's just fun. And um, the tournament's going to be going on the entire month uh, into May. And so depending on when people are listening to this, you, you should still potentially have the opportunity to come and join in and check it awesome. out. Yeah, I mean, you know, we, we, turn, we, we turn to the sports pages and we see animals up against each other all the time. You know, the Rams and the Cardinals, the Eagles and the Falcons. So I don't know why no one's ever you know, named a pro franchise after a vegetable before. Yeah, that's right. Well, maybe whoever wins the tournament should be the next pro franchise. So it would be interesting. Well, all right. So we'll uh, we'll put all those links in the show notes. And I really I'm looking forward to uh, to meeting you sometime. So I'm not I'm I'm in North Carolina. So uh, I'll we we head down to Hilton Head every so often. So we'll. Uh, I'll give you a call and we can we can uh, exchange sauerkraut. You'll definitely have to let me know if you're cruising through. Um, and I, I head up to North Carolina quite a bit and would love to see you next time I'm up there. And um, again, I'm really uh, honored to have the opportunity to come on your show. This has been such a great show for people that are interested in a plant-based diet. And I'm glad that we can have a real conversation where, you know, I'm not trying to spin this. I'm not trying. This is not some agenda. This is just science. This is just science. And the science is showing us this is what we should be doing. So thanks for everything that you're doing. Oh, my pleasure. It was great meeting you. Great talking to you. And um, thanks for taking the time today. Cool. Thanks, Howard. Take care. So, dear listener, did you come away from that with a laundry list of things to get into your life? I sure did. Uh, The two glasses of water, the two monstrous glasses of water in the morning, Uh, That's become something that I do. I just got this big quart mason jar and I make sure it's filled. And the first thing I do in the morning is sort of glug at least half of it down. Um, I'm also looking at those fermentation weights or pickle pebbles to to start fermenting. I've been doing fermenting for a long time using very, very complicated stuff from the uh, like the beer store, these uh, airlocks and things like that. And this seems like a much easier method with a lot less mess. So I'm going to get into that as well. You can find links to those products and to everything we talked about in the show notes for today's episode, which is plantyourself.com slash 277. And if you're new to the show, you can catch up on 276 archived episodes over at plantyourself.com. In garden news, all the same stuff is growing. The blueberries, uh, raspberries have kind of fizzled out. Um, We got our first couple of apples from an apple tree that we planted last year. I'm not expecting too much yet, but they're exciting to see and to pick. And lots and lots of greens. And we got our first almost ripe full-size tomato. In running news, I'm alternating between long, slow, hot recovery runs and short sprint workouts in preparation for the Ultimate Disc Championships in Chicago and July 20th. If you're in the uh, Chicagoland area and you'd like to come out and see uh, old men sweat and wheeze and gasp and drink pickle juice, email me, hj at plantyourself.com, and we'll find a time to get together. Uh, And of course, I can't leave the podcast without mentioning that this podcast is supported by listeners like you. 
and listeners unlike you, a whole host of listeners. And I would love to add your name to the roll call of honor of people who put their money with their mouth is in spreading this message. If you'd like to join that group, go to plantyourself.com. Just click on, go on the right sidebar and you'll see a link for Patreon. And there you can set up a simple, easy monthly recurring payment that helps me do this job better, easier, with greater degree of ease and freedom. All right, time for the gratitudes. Thanks to Will Ridenauer for allowing me to use Sabali Dawn, the Dance of Peace, as the theme music for this show. Check out willridenauer.com. Every so often I should spell his last name. It's not obvious. It's like ride, N-O-U-R. So will, R-I-D-E-N-O-U-R.com to find more of that gorgeous Kora music from Western Africa. And of course, thanks to all of you podcast patrons. Kim Harrison, Lynn McClellan, Anthony Disson, Brittany Porter, Dominic Mara, Barbara Whitney, Tammy Black, Amy Good, Amanda Hatherley, Mary Jane Wheeler, Alan Kennelly, Melissa Copper, Rachel Barnes, Christine Nielsen, Tina Sharp, Tina Ahern, Jen Volkanovsky, David Bizek, The Mysterious, Michelle X, Elizabeth Felton, Victoria Dolomanova, Leah Stoller, Alan Christensen, Colly Peck, Michelle Andrew, Josina, Julianne Rowland, Stu Dolnick, Sarah Durkis, Ramsey Circus, Kelly Cameron, Wayne Pedersen, Leanne Peterson, Janet Selby, Claire Adams, Tom Franzek, Jeanette Bedham, Gila, Sarah David Donahue, Blair Cyber, Dorona Vizov, Gio and Carolyn Argentati, Jody Friester, Ruth Ann Funderburg, Misha Rosen, Mike Moore, Beck, the equally mysterious Tracy Zeely, Shalemis, Rebecca Hughes. Val Lineman rhymes with cinnamon. Nick Harper, Stephanie Holmes, Martha Bergner, Nicole Ramsey, Susan Namat, Molly Levine, the inscrutable Harry R. Susan Laverty, the Panda Vegan, Craig Kovic, Adam Scharf, Karen Burley, Heather Morgan, Ashley Corker, and Kelly Machia, Deanne Norton, Bonnie Lynch, of Planet Happy Organ, Sabina Kurtzels, Nigel Davies, Marion Blum, Teresa Coble, Shell Ruthless, Julian Watkins, Breed O'Connell, Brian Sheridan, Shannon Hirschman, Kate Rose, Linda Ayat, Julie Lang, Home Hedegaard, Isa Tuzin, Wakoni, Connie Hainline, Aaron Greer, Alicia Davis, Avivilla L, Heather O'Connor, Carolyn Jensen, Shirley Orlikowski of Plant Power for Health, Karen Smith, Scott Moran, Karen and Joe Crab, Titania Lewis, Kirby Burton, Teresa Carell, Kevin McCall. Elizabeth Rothschild, Kelly Baker, Miracle Ann, Jesse, Cheryl Dwyer, Jenny Hazelton, Valerie Peltier, Peter W. Evans, Colleen Harrison, Justine Divot, Joshua Summermeyer, Dennis Bird, Darby Kelly, and Lori Fanny for your generous support of the podcast. That's it for this week. As always, be well, my friends. Time for thanks. Thanks to Will Ridenauer for allowing me to use his beautiful song, Sabali Don, The Dance of Peace. You can find more of Will's music at his website, willridenauer.com. And of course, thanks to all of you Plant Yourself podcast patrons. Kim Harrison, Lynn McClellan, Anthony Disson, Brittany Porter, Dominic Maurer, Barbara Whitney, Tammy Black, Amy Good, Amanda Hatherley, Mary Jane Wheeler, Ellen Kennelly, Mr. Cobb, Rachel Behrens, Christine Nielsen, Tina Sharp, Tina Ahern, Jennifer Kinoski, David Bizek, The Mysterious, Michelle X, Elspeth Feldman, Leah Stoller, Alan Christensen, Colleen Peck, Michelle Landry, Josina, Sarah Durkis, Rhymes with Circus, Kelly Cameron, Wayne Pedersen, Janet Selby, Janet Selby, Janet Selby, hi Janet, Claire Adams, Tom Franzek, Jeanette Benham, Gil Lassert, David Donahue, Blair Cyber, Dorona Vizov, Gio and Carl- Carolyn Argentati, Jody Friesen, Ruth Ann Funderburg, Misha Rosen, Michael Warbeck, the equally mysterious Tracy Z, Aviva Lael, Alicia Lemus, Rebecca Hughes, Val Lenneman, Rhymes with Cinnamon, Nick Harper, Martha Bergner, Susan Ahmad, Nolly Levine, the inscrutable Harry R., Susan Laverty, the Panda Vegan, Craig Kovic, Adam Sharp, Karen Burry, Heather Morgan, Kelly Machia, Dean Norton, Bonnie Lynch at Plant Happy Oregon, Sabina Kurtzels, Nigel Davies, Marion Blum, Teresa Cobble, Julian Rodkins, Breed O'Connell. 
Shannon Hirschman, Linda Ayat, Holm Hedegaard, Izatuzin Wa, Connie Hainline, Aaron Greer, Alicia Davis, Heather O'Connor, Carolyn Jensen, Sherry Olakoski of Plant Power for Health, Karen Smith, Scott Marani, Karen Joe Crabtree, Tanya Lewis, Kirby Burton, Teresa Carell, Kevin McCauley, Elizabeth Rothschild, Ann Jesse, Cheryl Dwyer, Jenny Hazleton, Valerie Peltier, Peter W. Evans, Colleen Harrison, Justin Divich, Ashra Summermeyer, Dennis Bird, Darby Kelly, Lori Fanny, Linnea Lundquist, Valerie Hummel, Emily Iaconelli, Levy Wallach, Rosamund McAtee, Dan Bacorny, Stephen Lehman, Patty DiMartino, Mike and Donna Karts, Dean Bishop, Bill Brielf, Gunter Schmidt, Marjorie Lewis, Kelly Molden, Rashad Adams, Ian Kramer, Nancy Sheldon, Lindsay Bayshore, Gunmarie Hagen, Tracy Gullich, Laura Heaton, Meg from Mama Says, Rochelle Kennedy, Diana Goldman, Stacey Stokes, Ben Savage, Michael Kay, Holly Butler, David Hughes, Connie Rogers, Claire England, Sally Robertson, Parham Ganshik, Amy Daly, Brian Tourville, Mark Jeffrey Johnson, Josie Dempsey, Karen Schmidt, Pamela Hayden, Emily Perryman, Olga Sidorowska, Allison Corbett, Richard Stone, Lauren Vaught of Edible Musings, Aaron Hasty, Sean Owen, Sagar Nayak, Erica Piedra, Danielle Roberts, Michael Lushton, and Sarah Johnson for your generous support of the podcast. That's it for now. As always, be well, my friends.